1: up on today's show, we'll speak with Kelly Kraiba, an Alberta teacher in Shanghai going through what has become a terrible ordeal with the latest COVID lockdown there. Canada headed for a recession? And what's with the political dialogue in this country? We attack our opponents, we label them as fascists or Nazis or socialists or dictators. We talked about this earlier this week, the situation in Shanghai, China, where they've gone through a, well, you want to talk lockdowns. This, this is what a lockdown looks like. And it's been going on for some time in that city as they try and deal with COVID. Um, we're going to chat with Kelly Kriba, who is an Edmontonian who is teaching in Shanghai and is good enough to join us now. Kelly, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it.
0: Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so let's just get the background here. You, you're you're living and working in China. You, you teach English to children, right? That's That's the job?
0: Yes. So I actually moved to Shanghai back in 2017. Okay. So I have been here for five years. And right now I teach middle school history at an international school.
1: Um, Now, we've heard some real horror stories about what's going on uh, in China. (laughs) Uh, Just tell us what the situation that you're going through right now is. is Is it as bad as we keep hearing in terms of this lockdown that's currently underway?
0: I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience. Um, Everyone does experience things differently. So um, in my personal opinion, this lockdown has been extremely challenging. Again, I was here back in 2020 when the initial uh, pandemic first started here in China. And when you compare the lockdown now to the one we had two years ago, this one is severe. It is more serious, believe it or not, than even the initial breakout back in 2020.
1: Wow. Okay. First of all, why don't we start with, um, what, what's a day in the life like? Like when you talk about a really severe lockdown, how severe, what's going on?
0: So, um, in March, mid March, we, again, I'm a teacher. We closed our schools and we moved to online learning, which was our first indicator that, you know, something was coming and, You know, we've gone online a couple of times throughout the pandemic years. Um, However, at the first of March, it was the worst (laughs) April Fool's joke that ended up not being a joke at all. (laughs) And um, again, Shanghai is huge. There's 25 million people and um, the river runs through it and it's split into two parts. So half of Shanghai was already in lockdown for four days prior to my side, the pushy side. So on April 1st, we were told the whole city is locked down. Everything is closed. Schools, takeout, public transportation, um, nail salons, like everything. Absolutely everything is locked down. And we were told that it would be for five days, April 1st to April 5th. It is now April 22nd. And nothing's changed? Nothing. There's no indication of when this lockdown will be lifted, which is the worst part of it all.
1: Now, we've heard stories of, um, you know, complete apartment buildings being like locked up, like you cannot leave. Is it that bad? I mean, can you get out of your home at all or are you basically confined to your house?
0: Um, so again, it it does differ from person to person and even district to district. So initially a lot of the apartment buildings were physically sealed. So they were tied off by rope. Wow. Um, there were photographs of them being chained, locked shut. Yes. I saw that. Um, in my, (laughs) in my specific case, um, we actually have guards. And they would patrol the apartment complex, and they would pretty much catch anyone that was trying to leave their apartment building. So, yeah, it do you was know, not like, fun. W- However, what
1: was the oh. punishment? What was if if they did catch you leaving your apartment building? Do you know was was that you know were you going to jail or were they sent? What was the the discipline? Do you know?
0: Um, For my understanding, I'm not sure exactly what has happened. Okay. I think. Um, it was more of a warning. And I think a lot of people do comply with rules and regulations here in China. Um, so I don't think it is a, as big of an issue. Uh, yeah, people are very aware of the rules and a lot more inclined to follow them than Uh, other countries would be.
1: (laughs) Um, In terms of, you know, just daily life, I know that there were some problems getting food, like you're obviously, you're not allowed to go out and go grocery shopping. So how were you getting food? And how has that worked over the past three weeks now?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, Initially, that was, you know, everyone's biggest worry. Again, we were told it was going to be five days. So when we got the news, we stocked up, for five days. And it was very clear as time was going on, that it was going to be much longer. So we, the only way that you can get food is through government rations. So the government has been um, sending people food once or twice a week, which has been nice. Um, It's usually vegetables, um, maybe some eggs, and sometimes meat, but not so often because you know meat can go off yeah so again a lot of the elderly population that doesn't have access to phones or any like digital anything that can't physically order food they rely heavily on these government rations Um, however for me I am able to order food but it is collectively so for example. I can't really order individual items that I need. It's more so everyone in your apartment complex places a mass order, and then it's delivered and it's split among okay. everybody.
1: Have you? I mean, are you are you are you getting what you need? Basically, I mean, like you say, not a lot of choice and it's fairly limited. But are you at least getting what you need to survive? It sounds like it, obviously.
0: Yeah, of course. So we are okay. We do have enough food. Um, is it, you know, McDonald's, is it, you know, takeout? Absolutely not. Um, but we do have access to the staples. We have pasta, we have fresh vegetables coming in, um, again, once or twice a week. So we're fine. Um, is it the most luxurious experience? (laughs) No. And it is a very humbling. Um, but yeah, it just reminds you what, what really is important. So
1: is there, um, is there an end in sight? Like you say, this has gone on much longer than you expected it would. Does it look like it might be ending anytime?
0: Uh, Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, there is a lot of speculation, even comparing it to 2020. We were back at school, um, I believe, June 1st was our first day back. Um, but with Omicron, again, this strain is a lot more contagious, so I think... Um, It's a lot more difficult to combat and that's the big issue. So we don't know and we're trying to stay as positive as possible. But again, you can understand that 25 million people are locked down. So how long can this go on is everyone's question.
1: Do you have an opportunity to speak to other people in the building or other people in the neighborhood? I mean, what is the the general mood? People must be just absolutely ready to snap at this point.
0: <laughs> yes. So one good thing, actually, that came out of this was um, everyone that lives in my apartment building, we were thrown into a group chat um, through a program similar to WhatsApp. It's called WeChat here. And I've actually gotten to know my neighbors quite well, which is nice. And I've been able to translate and keep up with their messages. And they have been so lovely to me. Um, A lot of the time, they take pity on me and my fiance. They know we're foreigners. And again, we have no idea what's going on. Everything is obviously in Mandarin, in Chinese. And (laughs) as much as I'd like to say I've lived here for five years, my Mandarin is not good. So yeah, we really have no idea. So I have been piggybacking off of my neighbors a lot and they've been really, really helpful and, you know, asking us if we need anything, if they can help us, if they can trade items with us. So um, that has been really, really good.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's good to you. sounds like you're being as positive as you possibly can, but it has to be an absolute nightmare. Uh, Kelly, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today.
0: You're welcome. Thank you so much for yeah. having me, and oh, hello to Edmonton. I miss you guys so much. <laughs>
1: well, I, I hope, hopefully this is over soon. Uh, best of luck. Hang in there. Thanks, Kelly.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Um, that's Kelly Kraiba, who is an Edmontonian living in China, as you heard, since 2017, and um, uh, teaching English to kids there, and it just basically full-on lockdown since uh, early April. It was supposed to last four days. They're now on day 22, so I mean... Uh, it's, it's, oh, I can't imagine what that would, I, I would, I would absolutely lose my mind. So, uh, maybe we'll check in with her down the road and see how things are going, if things are getting better, or if it's just continuing to drag on and on and on. Ho- hopefully it doesn't though. I mean, good Lord, how long is it going to take? So just think about what we've been through and where we are right now. I mean, it, it it's, it's crazy what we've, been dealing with as a, as a global population over the last few years. I mean, you've got the pandemic, of course, you know, a once-in-a-hundred-year situation that nobody saw coming. you got the war in Europe. That hasn't happened in, well, almost 100 years. Um, record high fuel prices. That's triggering inflation that we haven't seen in, in decades, some 40 years in this country. Uh, that's triggering interest rate hikes. I mean, it, it's a scene. There's a lot going on out there right now. Um, get ready. Sounds like there may be more to come. We're going to have a chat now with Philip Cross. Philip is a Monk Senior Fellow at Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Prior to joining them, he spent 36 years at Stats Canada, specializing in macroeconomics. Uh, Philip, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So uh, there was a survey done recently by the group um, Finder, uh, talking to uh, economists across the country about the possibility of a recession, it sounds like, the majority think that we are well on our way to a recession. I mean, not immediately, but fairly soon, right?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, that's what history suggests, that, uh, you know, obviously inflation is at intolerably high levels yeah. now. And, uh, you know, the hope is that central banks will be engineer will be able to engineer what's called a soft landing, where they raise interest rates just enough to slow the economy, but not enough to push it in recession. Unfortunately, the track record of central banks doing this successfully is not encouraging at all. Uh, They pulled it off maybe once or twice, notably 1994, but most of the time it requires a recession to slow down inflation, and especially when you have inflation at at such a high rate as we're having today.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, is it anything that you're seeing, or is it just based on historical? You know, taking a look at the way incredible inflation ended it was with a recession is there is there other indicators that you can point to right now and say yeah this is what happened before
2: uh the main one is no there's nothing in the data on output and employment that says we're sliding into the recession right now what you're seeing is particularly signals from the from the financial sector though from the financial system saying uh the financial systems under a lot of stress i mean remember during the pandemic we issued literally hundreds of billions of dollars of debt so we as a nation and almost all sectors of our economy went into went through the pandemic and acquired a great deal of debt that leaves us very vulnerable to an increase in interest rates and we're now seeing interest rates rise much faster than markets had anticipated so you're seeing it's it's not just debtors that are in trouble there's all kinds of people in the financial sector who operated who made bets assuming the interest rates would stay low historically whenever you get a big move in interest rates like we've seen so far this year almost invariably not only do you have an uh, an economic recession but you have some type of blow up in the financial system Um, the most obvious one of course would be a downturn in the stock market but you know you'll get other um, Things like the uh, the crash of the long term capital management fund in 1998, you'll get a um, uh, stress in the in various mark esoteric markets, markets like the repurchase market that happened in 2018 when the Federal Reserve Board surprised people by tightening. So that's the real problem. In here is that it's not just creating stress for uh, the real economy and recession but there's a, a likelihood that there's going to uh, this is going to cause a train wreck somewhere in the financial system. Exactly where, we don't know, but we do know there's growing stress in the financial
1: sector. Um, is it possible to sort of put a timeline on it? I know that that seems to be, most economists agree there is a recession in our future, but uh, pinpointing when it may or may not start seems to be a little more difficult. Um, what goes into trying to determine how quickly it will arrive or how long it will take?
2: Well, part of I mean, the wild card in this is this blow-up in the financial sector, and you never know when that'll happen. Yeah. You know, people make some bets, and you don't know what's going on. That could happen any time. But it's much more likely, you know, a natural downturn in consumer spending and business investment, I think we know that consumers have a lot in reserve, that interest rates for the moment are actually still at quite low levels. I mean, you know, yes, they're a half, three-quarters of a point higher than they were at the start of the year, But uh, historically, they're still at very low levels. Governments are still spending like crazy. I mean, here in central Canada, uh, we have the Ford and Legault governments are mailing out 500 checks to anybody with a pulse. So uh, households still have a lot of reserves. They have a lot of savings built up in the pandemic. So they can likely absorb some shocks. They can absorb some furthering interest rate increases. Uh, the problem is that as long as households are able to absorb these shocks, inflation isn't going to come down. So uh, central banks will just keep tightening and tightening until somebody says, uncle. Uh, and unfortunately, by the time that the households say, uncle, you're likely to see such a sharp cutback in spending that uh, the economy could well tip into recession. But that's likely not to happen until uh, uh, sometime next year.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what most of the predictions are. So help me out then. I mean, if, if the recession is typically how, you know, this kind of record inflation ends, all the things that are being done now with the interest rates and everything else, are they just sort of buying us time? Did they have some role to play? I mean, why do we do it then?
2: Why do we do which we raise
1: interest rates? Yeah. I mean, is it, does that what contribute, like, how does that whole formula work?
2: Because the pain from rising interest rates is very short term, and it's concentrated in certain parts of the, of the economy. The pain from inflation is felt by everyone, and it distorts the economy in a, in a way that it, the economy doesn't function well for years and years. Gotcha. So in, in a way, it's, it's better to get the uh, it's, it's short-term pain for long-term gain. Uh, that's why central banks do this.
1: Makes sense. Okay. Philip, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us.
2: Thank you for having me on. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That's Philip Cross, who is a Monk Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. And uh, prior to that, he spent 36 years um, with StatsCan talking about this very subject. This is something that happens, and I talk about it a lot. We, we hear a lot of The us versus them. The division, right? We talk about it so much. Well, how many times have you heard dictator, socialist, communist, fascist, Nazi to describe people in politics in this country, right? It happens all the time. Um, There's no end to it. Supercharged labels that we apply to the politicians these days. You got to remember these words have actual meanings. They're in the dictionary. They mean things, which largely we seem to have abandoned uh, because we like to fight. And go with it that way. And that's that's what the, they're weaponized, is really what they are. We're going to chat with uh, Dr. Stuart Prest now. Uh, Dr. Prest is a lecturer in political science at Simon Fraser University and wrote a piece for CBC Opinion recently on this very uh, subject. Uh, Dr. Prest, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. It's my pleasure. You know, this... This is something I try and talk about a lot. It's just the supercharged rhetoric, the over-the-top stuff. But, I mean, we do need to remember that these terms started out with dictionary definitions. These names, these labels, they actually do mean things in reality, right?
3: That's right. I teach courses where we talk about what the different ideological backgrounds are of the different parties and where they come from, how they evolve over time. We also talk about things like dictators, dictatorships, authoritarian yep. regimes. And we have ways to measure those things. And Canada is... Uh, suffice so say it's it's nowhere on that spectrum Canada is a democracy and a, a very w- well functioning one for all that we we like to complain about our politics. The democratic institutions in this country are are strong
1: yeah, you may like it, it, it you know the exa- you know, some people will say well I mean, it's just exaggeration or whatever it's just making a point, but they're they're weaponized right There's a reason that this happens i mean those original definitions and the actual facts around the terms have been abandoned, and now they're used as weapons right
3: yeah, we see that, and I, I think we're, we're seeing it. We've seen it in in different phases in in our history. It's not like this is a brand new phenomenon, but we I think we are seeing it more and more yeah. these days, where there's a, a, a willingness and almost an eagerness not just to to disagree with your opponent, to say your opponent mis- is mistaken, but to say they're somehow illegitimate, that their position uh, in responding to some complex set of circumstances, uh, and we've seen are more than our, our fair share of those recently. Um, but the response is not just say. Wrong-footed, or, or mistaken, or somebody else could do it better. But to say it's it's anti-democratic, it's illegitimate, and we're going to link the the actors in politics today with with some of the worst villains in, in history. So we're going to talk about the current prime minister as, as a, a dictator or a, a socialist authoritarian. Trying to draw those links when uh, when Justin Trudeau is is democratically accountable. He's he's being criticized in the House of Commons. There are judicial processes to to make sure that the uh, government is acting within the bounds of law and, and in accordance with the constitution. So we have all these checks on power that uh, uh, are, are definitive in, in part of uh, in how we identify this as a democratic state. And yet we see people eagerly uh, describing him as a dictator, as, as somebody who is illegitimate in, in his
1: office. Um, you know, it's it's the politicians who do it that frustrate me because some of them, at least, I think, are smart enough to know what they're doing, um, and and they know that it's 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 it's. It's destructive. It's harmful. It doesn't benefit us as a society. It benefits them personally, understand it, but they do it because it works, right? I mean, that, that strategy works, it sticks, and it, they can make some gains with it.
3: Well, absolutely. It is a, a very handy shorthand, a way to communicate a whole basketful of ideas to to an audience that is frustrated with with government says that they're looking for an alternative. And if you can use that label and you can attach it to uh, another politician, then you can really firm up uh, your support and and uh, uh, essentially burn the bridge uh, of, of even making the other uh, a viable choice or a legitimate option on the table. If you can uh, define them in some people's minds as being anti-democratic somehow then then you've really strengthened your own position and so there's all kinds of short-term benefits from that but but of course in the long term everyone uh, ends up suffering because we start to question the the very uh, nature of our institutions the the reliability of our institutions and we've seen some of that on display recently in in Canada so when we uh, watched the the Ottawa protest or occupation however you want to label it uh, unfold we saw calls for an overturning of the state and And we have people having to report on these issues. And and rather than trying to talk about how are we going to win the next election, we're talking about how can we uh refound our our democratic institutions, which are working very well in the form of holding government to account and we're going to have we we have elections every couple of years these days, and so we we have all kinds of ways to hold government to account. The fact that we disagree with what a government is doing doesn't mean it's illegitimate and yet we seem to slide into that that conclusion and it it is to the short term benefit of of politicians perhaps to to uh, articulate that in an opposition, but but in the long term, it really erodes our our trust in these institutions.
1: So where does the onus lie, Doc? When you take a look at this, this is where I have a problem, because I have little faith that we can expect to see change on this front from the politicians who engage in this kind of behavior. Uh, This kind of rhetoric will always exist, and there will always be politicians willing to play the game by those rules. But at the same time, And you should see our text line, Doc. Uh, There's a lot of people out there that will play right along with them, that love it, that expect it, that support it. So where does the onus, I mean, how do we get to a point where we reject this kind of ridiculousness within the conversation around politics in our country and, and deal with reality?
3: Well, I think there there is no simple solution, as you say. Uh, we do uh, have to do wherever we can. We have to find ways to to hold politicians to account for for the language, for the way in which they they choose to to talk about these things, and and really try to uh, encourage uh, spaces for for dialogue and, and discourse. And that um, that sounds like hard work, and it is. But but really, there isn't any other alternative. We rely in a democracy on on politicians, on leaders, to essentially not risk everything. Yeah, The idea yeah. that we are going to respect the rules of the game. When you see uh, politicians start to act in a way where victory is more important than uh, defense of the, the, the institutions themselves, then we have a real problem. So we really have to find ways to to reground our, our uh, faith in a democracy, our understanding of just how important the rules of the game are, and that we are... Going to respect them and and compete within them, but at the end of the day, if if we lose, then we respect that and we we, uh, we uh, concede defeat gracefully, and then we try harder the next time. We try to come up with new arguments to to uh, to vanquish our opponents, and and really encouraging politicians to do that because as, as soon as it becomes uh, more convenient or or somehow uh, validated to start questioning the very institutions of, of government and challenging the legitimacy of of our opponents, then we get down on the slippery. Slope and and this is the way that democracy can can unwind over the long term, where we start to see really that that change from trying to compete within the game to uh, prior, prioritizing victory over
1: over the the maintenance of the institutions themselves. Losing is a crucial part of democracy. Yeah, I, I could not agree with you more, Doctor. Great discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. That's Doctor Stuart Press.